0: Keep your Bibles right where they're at. Matthew 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 11 will be our text for this morning. We're going to be continuing uh, in our study of or on the work of Christ. Uh, that's what we've been in for several weeks and will be for several more. <clears throat> so far, we've looked at what uh, Christ accomplished for us through his incarnation that's coming to earth and becoming a man. Uh, Through his childhood, we saw that as a 12-year-old boy, he was even in the temple about his father's business, and his father's business is redemption, which is our redemption. So even at 12, he was about, had us in mind and was working for us. And then we also looked at his baptism and what was accomplished through that. This morning, we're going to look at Christ's temptation, and I think it'll be pretty pretty interesting. Uh, And that's basically what we just read about so let's just pray one more time uh, and then we'll get to work okay and father we just want to humble ourselves now and yield ourselves to your spirit and and we pray lord that you would open our hearts minds ears uh, to the truth lord that um, uh, that the truth would in no way just fall on deaf ears or sort of a dumbed down spirit Uh, that we would be distracted by anything at all that we would just We realize why we've come, and that's just to kind of lay aside the cares of this life and world, just to be in your presence and to hear from you. Uh, This is uh, your sermon, it's your word, and uh, we pray that you would uh, send the Holy Spirit in power to uh, transform us, to change us just a little bit more, to make us just a little bit more like Christ, and and, uh, even bigger than that, that we would just bask in the glory of Christ and what he's accomplished for us, how he secured our righteousness And uh, we'll talk about those things. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would prevail here over our our attitudes and attention and hearts and just uh, cause the Spirit to do a great work uh, in this congregation today. And may you be glorified in all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to work this whole passage. uh, Take a look at verse 1. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We'll begin right at verse 1. And uh, what version were you reading from, Bernie? I liked it. What was that? Uh, Was that the NIV? Yeah, it reminded me of of how much I liked that translation. Um, But I'll be reading from one that's uh, far superior, uh, the ESV. Uh, But, you know, I love you. Uh, No, we're going to be looking at the ESV this morning, but I love that. That was great. Uh, So it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Okay, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus is right after his baptism. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit—that's the Holy Spirit—into the wilderness, and it says to be tempted by the devil again. So, after being baptized, after being anointed with the Spirit uh, for ministry, remember how the Spirit—we read about how the Spirit last week. We read about how the Spirit came down in the form of a dove, and it came to rest upon Jesus. God had the Father had anointed Christ. For the, for the, with the Spirit for the ministry. So after he's baptized, after he's anointed with the Spirit, after he is affirmed by God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? Right after this these things took place, immediately after these things, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be led or to be tempted by uh, the devil. Now, it's important for us to, to note that this particular moment is the beginning of Jesus's ministry some will try to say well you know after the tempting that's when his ministry began but it's imperative that we realize his ministry began when he was anointed and was led by the spirit so what that means is that the temptation of Jesus it's part of his ministry it's part of his work okay so we don't want to we don't want to misunderstand what's happening it's not that his ministry began after the temptation then he left and started doing miracles and all this stuff this is part of it His ministry, we would say, began with his temptation. So I would say this, that overcoming temptation, dealing with it and overcoming temptation was his first official ministerial work. It was the very first thing that he he did. And it's not to say that he wasn't working for us before. We've learned how he did that at 12 and how back in eternity past, the covenant of redemption, how he's working for us then. But this is like the first official thing that he engaged in and dealt with. During his ministry, or at the onset of his ministry, and I would say that in principle, the starting point for most ministry, if not all ministry, is temptation. All ministry begins with temptation—temptation temptation not to do it. You know what I'm talking about here. It's like the minute that you start to consider how you might pray through or or, or figure out how God's calling you to serve Him, immediately you're hit with temptation. And the temptation is usually you're too busy, you're too broke, you don't have enough talent, uh, you're not qualified, you're, you know, you're too sick, you're too t- whatever it is. So, in a way, in principle, Jesus' ministry began with temptation. And I would say that the nature of ministry, period, it always there's always temptation there from the devil, from his minions, not to engage. So, in principle, I think that's a truth. I can tell you that. Uh so, so often this is the case with me in my life, you know, I, uh, you know I, I'm, I've got, somebody needs help, somebody needs counseling or something, and, and, and then I set a date, you know, and then, and then I get in the car and I'm, I'm on my way there and immediately I'm hit with the temptation just to call it off. You're too busy for this, Phil, you don't have time for this person, you don't, are you crazy? You're, you're trying to do this in the middle of all this stuff where you're exhausted, you've just been going and going and going and going. And, I, and I'd have to just be a little trans, more transparent with you. It's, it's even been the case on some Sundays. It's like you roll out of bed, and you're like, oh, man, you're so tempted just to get back under those wonderful covers. You know, and, and just, it just Lord, you, you'll work it out. <laughs> Somebody will show up and preach. <laughs> That's a scary thought, right? Um, well, Pastor Phil's not here right now, so... Uh, <laughs> I think I'll just, um, let's take a look at the Bible. You know, it, it, just this temptation always, whenever I'm considering or thinking about or praying through how I might serve, there's always temptation that comes and, and there's always some sort of a tempting distraction or something like that from it. And we, we really do see that in the text here. Another way that that happens to me is when I'm, you know, I'm walking to the offering box to put in the offering that I that I've brought, you know, that I've put together to bring to the Lord and you know as I'm as I'm reaching to the slot with the envelope it's like you could totally keep this. There are things that you could do. There are good things that you could do with this money. You could, you know, you could pay that bill or whatever it's like I already did pay that bill but you could send them more you know Now that's actually never the temptation the temptation is don't pay the bills Uh, you could go out to do's with your wife you know you could go eat and so don't we get hit with these things in a number of ways we're always tempted when it comes to doing the things of the Lord I got to get an amen here because I can't be the only one that's dealing with this stuff the minute that I try to do something good for the Lord I'm hit with some kind of a temptation we see it right here in the text. And and why is that? Why is it that at the onset of ministry or during ministry, why is it that there is, is always temptation? I'll tell you why, because the devil does not want us to serve the Lord. He hates the Lord. Why would he want it? he hates us, he hates the Lord. Why would he want us to do anything for Jesus. Why would he want us to put money in, in the offering box so that, so that we can continue to have a roof and these sorts of things or pay a salary or do something that's about the kingdom? Why would we go serve at this elderly facility? Why? He doesn't want us to do any of these things in the name of Jesus. He's the mortal enemy of Jesus. He hates him. And he hates us and he doesn't want us to serve. So of course he's going to tempt us not to come to church, not to serve, not to engage, not to give. That's That's his work is to tempt us not to engage and not to do these things. He does it all the time. Now, why was it necessary for Christ to be tempted at the beginning of His ministry? And then I would also say throughout His ministry. More particularly in this moment, because this is what we're looking at. Why? why, why? Jesus, why does your ministry begin with temptation? Why did you have to go through this temptation? Now, well, the New Testament makes it clear that Christ was called to be the last Adam, or maybe we would say the new Adam, so that he might accomplish what the first Adam, right? You know, our like, way back in the past grandparent, the one who dropped the ball in the garden and screwed up. Christ becomes like the new Adam. He was called to be the new Adam to do what the old Adam, the first Adam, the original Adam, didn't actually do and accomplish. He had to actually kind of walk in those footsteps and do things that Adam failed to do. And so that's why he was tempted the way that he was at this particular uh, juncture when the first Adam that's Eve's husband right was tempted and tested by the serpent in the garden he failed miserably did he not it's like when we read the Genesis account the very first temptation that comes he blows it on the very first one now, it, it, Scripture doesn't say that there were other temptations that came. I don't know if there were. It doesn't say there were. It's, it just seems that the serpent appears, and here's this very first temptation. And, and we all think that, you know, uh, they'd been in the garden for, you know, 2.6 billion years already, and then it happened. I think it was pretty quick after they were put there, and Eve was created from his side and all that. But he, he failed miserably when he was first tempted. He gave into the temptation, he ate the forbidden fruit, he sinned, as our federal. Head, he thrust us and 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 all of creation in a sense into sin and death. The covenant of redemption, however, this contractual kind of thing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed upon and created and agreed upon back in eternity past, that particular thing, the covenant of redemption, which God designed in eternity past, it stipulates that since men were lost through one man, all of humanity has been lost through this first Adam. They must also be redeemed by one man. If it was all lost through one, then only one can bring it back. Only one can fix it. That's what the covenant of redemption stipulates. And who is that man? It's the second Adam, which the New Testament calls Christ. It was lost through an Adam, and then a new Adam had to come and redeem it and fix it. Do what the old one failed to do. And you can read about that in Romans 5, 18 through 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 45. These are places that describe the covenant of redemption, the second Adam. This means that Christ had to be tempted and tested just like the first Adam. Adam, however, was afforded, and we must say he was afforded, the first Adam was afforded certain advantages that Christ was not afforded. When Adam was tempted, he was in a beautiful garden called Eden, which is also referred to as paradise. Eden had perfect weather, perfect climate. It wasn't too warm. It wasn't too cool. It wasn't like Kentucky where it's humid. It wasn't like California where there's no such thing as rain. It was just right. It was a perfect atmosphere. It was Hawaii without the humidity. I would say it was San Francisco, but San Francisco has the worst weather on the face of the earth. You can go there, it's 95 degrees here, you go there, it's 60, but it's the coldest 60 you'll ever experience in your life. It's something about the wind chill. It was a perfect, perfect atmosphere. But when Christ was tempted, he was in the wilderness. He wasn't in paradise, he was in the wilderness. We're talking about the Judean wilderness here. Which is one of the most ominous and foreboding deserts anywhere in the world—a terrible, terrible place. You don't take your family to, to to live there. Terrible. You don't move there. It is said that the only inhabitants of the Judean wilderness are snakes and scorpions. Even wildlife, R.C. Sproul said, even wildlife refuses to live in this place of desolation. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible place. Maybe like the the—it's like a moonscape just desolate and dry and nothing but venomous snakes and things of that nature. Also, another advantage that the first Adam had was that he when he was tempted he had his wife with him. Now, we would go back and read Genesis 3 and see that that wasn't all that much of a benefit because she was the first one to go, "Hey, that fruit looks delicious." But if you think about it in some kind of sense, temptation is or can be at least far less grueling when you have a trusted companion by your side. Amen. I think it was an advantage for him to have his spouse there. It uh, wasn't a disadvantage at all. They both failed and sinned. But when you have temptation that comes and you have someone whom you trust, someone whom you love that's by your side, you know, that can encourage you and help you in your struggle in these sorts of things, it can be, I, I would say, maybe more tolerable or easier to make it through those sorts of things. And yet, when Christ was tempted, he had no human companion. No, the Da Vinci Code is not right. He did not have a wife. He didn't have anyone with him. He had no human companion with him in the wilderness. He had nobody by his side to help defend him or to help encourage him or anything like that. Not a human, at least. He went into the wilderness in absolute solitude. It was the state of loneliness that received God's first malediction which would be a curse at creation you remember it's not good for man to be alone that's the malediction the very first one why is that because loneliness can be absolutely deadly can drive people to despair it's horrible we're not we're not created and designed to be alone and yet we see that christ enters the wilderness on his own lonely terrible terrible situation When we want to uh, punish criminals harshly, I would say prison's pretty harsh, but when we want to take that up a level, we send them to what? Solitary confinement, where they are cut off from ordinary human interaction and friendship. So it was with Christ. He was driven into the wilderness to face temptation completely alone for you and for I or from me. It's incredible. When Adam also, when Adam was tempted, he had plenty of really good food nearby. Sproul wrote again, Adam was tempted while in a gourmet restaurant. Uh, He was uh, in the lush environs of Eden, There were trees bearing all kinds of fruit that were wonderful, it says in Scripture, to eat. And Adam and Eve were given the freedom to choose from any of those fruit-bearing trees uh, to satisfy their hunger with the exception of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one that they couldn't touch, but they had all this other stuff. And I tell you, back then the law had one rule. Just don't eat from that one, but you can have everything else. Boy, wouldn't it be cool today if that was the way that it was? You know, uh, the first Adam, when he experienced temptation at the, at the hands of the serpent, his belly was full. He was satisfied with the best food that you could have. And I'm thinking, well, he didn't have tri-tip and ribs, you know, and, and all that carnivore stuff. I think that's the good stuff. Of course, my triglycerides that are about 400, so... Uh, but, you know, apparently before the fall... We were totally cool with eating all kinds of fruit and vegetables and stuff like that. He had the best. And his stomach was full. And I tell you, when you're tired or when you're hungry and all that, when temptation comes, it's a disaster. The second Adam experienced temptation in the wilderness where there was no food on an empty stomach. Look at that phrase, or the phrase, tempted by the devil once more. You see that? Tempted by the devil. It is unlikely that you or I will ever experience a direct attack or temptation from the devil like what we see here. Well, that's not true. He tempts me all the time. Well, it's probably not him doing it. Why is that? Because you're a small fish. He ain't got time for you. He didn't have time for me. We are small fish. The devil does not have time to go after small fish. He he really does. Look at scripture. He goes after high profile people. People of great influence. People of greater influence than me. People of greater influence than you. Adam. Job. Christ. Peter. The devil is asked to to basically ruin you tonight, Peter. And I've I've stayed that. No, he's not going to do that. He wants to come and tempt you. That's what Jesus tells Peter. You see, the devil himself personally goes after high-influence, high-profile people. you got Adam, Job, Christ, Peter. There's other examples in Scripture. When we are attacked, it is uh, usually, I'd say, probably 99% of the time, it would be one of Satan's servants doing the attacking, doing the tempting. It would be a demon. It would be one of his minions. One-third of the angels was cast out of heaven with the devil. Uh, In the King James Version in Revelation 5.12, it says that God's heavenly choir consists of over 100, this is just his choir, consists of over 100 million angels, beasts, and elders. And I have no idea what the beast is there. It's not the the number of the beast from the Iron Maiden song. It's 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 not a demon. It's some kind of a holy beast that worships. I didn't research it a hundred million there these are this is his worship choir around his throne a hundred million around his throne okay I thought what we had going a minute ago was pretty impressive apparently this is at a whole other level can't wait to see this and experience this by the way what do they do they cry out all day worthy is the lamb he's the one that can open the scroll pretty amazing if there are over 100 million Angels, beasts, or what have you, but primarily angels around his throne. How many are there in other parts of heaven or on earth serving God? And how many might have fell to earth with Satan? The point is is that there are plenty of demons, fallen angels, on earth to do Satan's bidding. And, And when you and I encounter evil or temptation or something of that nature, that is who is messing with us. There's plenty of demons out there to do the work. They're all over. I I think there's probably at least one per person. I think scripture even talks about that, that we're assigned angels, but there's also demons that the devil assigns to us, to tempt us, to probe us, to mess with us. There's plenty of them out there. Unless you are a big fish, the devil, I don't don't believe he'll directly attack you. Maybe, I, I don't think so. I think it's his demons that do it. And I think that just pick up on that. What do we have here in this scripture? We have the devil himself in the wilderness tempting. Why? Because we're talking about Christ. A lot is at stake here. There's much more at stake with Christ than there ever will be with me or you. Now look at verses 2 and 3a, 2 through 3a. So he's there and he comes to tempt. He's led into the thing and there for that purpose of being tempted. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Really? Yeah. I, I would say really hungry, right? 3a, and the tempter came and said to him, and just right there, comma, done. Notice when the devil came to tempt and test Christ. It was after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, translation, going without food. Some say that the devil frequently came to Christ during his time in the wilderness. I've heard that said before. I don't know where the scriptural evidence for that is. It would appear in this verse that the only time that he came to him was at the end or after 40 days of fasting and all of that, which signifies to me that the way that the devil works here is that he waits till we can be in our weakest possible state and most vulnerable after 40 days of not eating. That is what the text says. The devil waited until Christ was at his weakest, most vulnerable point on the brink of salvation before he unleashed his temptation. This certainly tells us something about the nature of Satan's schemes. He does not approach us when we are strong. He will not. He approaches us when we are weak, when we are ill-prepared, when we are distracted. He is like a lion, it says even in Scripture, and I would say this, he's like a lion who waits patiently in the tall grass for a weakened or inexperienced or very young animal to wander down that narrow path. And then what does he do? He doesn't go after it. Lions don't go after full-sized You know, safari animals. They wait, they look for the baby that's going by. They look for the one that's behind, back in the back, who's sick, who's stumbling along. They go after, they tend to go after the weak. It's easier to take them down. And Satan, the devil, operates the same way as demons operate the same way. Knowing this about the devil, knowing this about his tactic and how he comes to us when we're weak and down or sad or distracted or whatever those are moments of weakness and vulnerability for us knowing this about him it should motivate us to make sure that we are getting enough food and when I say food I'm talking about physical food because believe it or not when you're starving and you're super super hungry you're weakened we say not only just physical food but enough rest how often have you fallen into temptation when you're exhausted when you're well rested you can stand more firm get exercise Exercise is imperative. It's something that I just recently discovered. You can notice my turkey neck's going down. It is going down a little bit. My wife all I'll turn to the side. Oh, well, look, it's smaller. And then I went, what about this? She goes, don't do that. It came back. You get enough food. You get enough rest. You get enough exercise. But you can't just be concerned about the physicality, the physical things, your physiology. You have to think about your spirituality. You have to get enough prayer. you got to get enough Bible. Why? So that we can stay strong physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You've got to be strong across the board if you're going to endure and, 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 and do well when temptation comes. If we're not taking care of ourselves in, in really all of these areas, the whole of life, we will become weak and susceptible to attack. Verse 2 also reminds us of Israel's testing in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of you are familiar with what happened there, Exodus chapter 15, 16, and 17. You can go read that. What did Israel do during this time of testing and refinement in the wilderness? Well, I'll tell you what they did primarily. They wept concerning their condition. They complained about God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. Uh, they, They wished they were dead. They even dreamed of going back to the place of bondage, imprisonment, Egypt. That's pretty bad when, you, when, you, when you're in a situation and you say, this is so bad, it's worse than the worst thing that I was ever involved in. I'd rather go back to that because that worseness is, is not as worse as this. That, that, that back then was really bad. We got delivered from that, but it was a heck of a lot better than this. That's the way they were thinking. Bottom line, during this testing in the wilderness Israel failed miserably. Miserably. Generations were killed off. It was a terrible, terrible time. Probably one of the worst times in Israel's history was that 40-year period. In fact, you go back and read those accounts. Moses and Aaron were constantly pleading with God not to destroy the people because they had become despicable. Kind of like us. Christ in the same way, he had to undergo testing in the wilderness, just as Israel did. Christ had to experience everything that his people experienced. Temptation, trial, testing. Now, of course, he went for 40 days and nights. See the parallel? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days and nights in the wilderness. The parallels are amazing in Scripture. With the exception that Christ, again... He didn't have the advantages and blessings that Israel had. He didn't have manna. He didn't have quail. I'm not sure if he even had water. I did say this last week, but in order for Christ to become our Savior, he had to experience what Israel and the rest of us experience. Birth. Uh, baptism was necessary for him. It had become a law in and of itself, in a sense. He, he had to be born. We're, we're born. He had to be baptized. Now, that's something that we do as believers, but he had to do it because the nation was called to do that. He had to be tempted, what, in the wilderness, just like Israel. In Verses 3b through 11, we're going to look at the three ways the devil tempted Christ and how Christ repudiated him. Let's take a look at 3b. And this is what the devil says to him. He came to tempt him and he says this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is the first temptation that the devil unpacked or brought to him, attacked him with. Those who read this passage often think that this temptation has to do with getting Christ to jump through hoops for the devil, to perform for the devil. This is true in a sense, but there's something much, much deeper going on here. And sometimes I think it's a little naked to the, you know, it's it's invisible to the naked eye. We look at this and look, he's just trying to get him to perform for him, and that's how he was trying to tempt and fail him. No, 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 it's much more than that. It has to do with getting Christ to question the accuracy, the authority, the sufficiency of God's word. In fact, I will go out on a limb and say that every temptation from the devil has to do with undermining what God has declared. That's a fact. I'm not going to go out on a limb. That's a fact. Right before this moment, God declared something very important over Christ. He said what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. In verse 3b, the devil sought to undo these words, this proclamation, this declaration, to undermine, to attack it. The devil always seeks to undo the words or word of God. This is his primary goal. In a way, he said this to Christ, Is that really what God said about you? Are you foolish enough to believe him? Okay, if it is true, if you are the son of God, then then why don't you prove it to me and prove it to yourself by doing what I tell you to do? It it has to do with undermining and attacking God's declared word. God said, this is my beloved son. And the devil says, is that really what he said? How can that be true? Only a fool would believe such a thing. The serpent used the same tactic against Eve and then Adam when he tempted them in the garden, in paradise. Basically, he said, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree in the garden? Did he really say that you can't have? In fact, he says that you can't eat from any of the trees. He totally twisted. Makes it look like they can't eat anything out there. Causing her to focus on just the one that they cannot eat from. But it's the same tactic here. Jesus, if you're the son of God, really, you think that? He said that? He declared that? Adam and Eve, did he really say that you can't? And What did he say to Adam and Eve? I tell you what, if you follow my instructions, if you do as I tell you to do, you just go eat from it, you will see that the fruit is great for eating. It's delicious. Probably the best thing you'll ever taste. And not only that, it'll make you like God. That's the deception. Same tactic used At the beginning that's used in the wilderness here, attacking the word of God, undermining it, trying to create doubt about it, questioning it. Now notice how specialized the temptation was here. Christ was hungry, probably hungrier than he had ever been before during his earthly life. And what did the devil do? He hit him with a hunger-related temptation. Use your divine power to turn these rocks into food so that you can vanquish your hunger. This is what he said. The devil is an expert in human behavior and he uses specific temptations. When people need money, he tempts them to what? Steal money, to finagle, to lie, to cheat, to somehow come up with those greenbacks. When they need clothing, he tempts them to shoplift. Boy, you need that. When they... When they need, yes, when they need that, they do that. When they need transportation, like a new car or whatever, when they need some kind of mode of transportation, what does he do? He tempts them to buy a vehicle they cannot afford. I know you were going for a Ford Festiva, but you would look amazing in an Escalade. I mean, tell me, he doesn't do this. Well, I need transportation. And he works through these salespeople, does he not? You show up, and I tell you what, they're like devil incarnate. You don't want that roach right there. You want this, huh? He tempts us specifically. He targets us specifically. If, if this is a need that we have, or even if it's a perceived need, he will tempt us to go full-blown with that, to go after those sorts of things. Another way that he does that is when it comes to shelter. A person needs a home. They need a simple shelter. And what does he do? He tempts them to build a palace that they'll spend the rest of their lives paying for. You have any idea how many people live in a place that they do not need? Boy, if we all just toned that down a little bit and lived in accordance with our actual needs. It's amazing how much more money we could give to the Lord. It's amazing how much more time we would have to serve and to do these things because we cripple ourselves. We think that we have to have this particular car. These are all temptations. i got to have that house. You go in and you look at a little two-bedroom, three-bath. You end up buying a five-bedroom and all that and you're like, what are we going to do, babe? I don't know, but we look good. If your weakness is lust, he will tempt you to look at lust-provoking imagery. If that's your Achilles heel, he's going to send imagery your way. You're going to get one of those emails. Hi, my name's Francois. Come look at my site." If your weakness is lust, what's he going to do? He's going to slam you with lust-provoking, lust-perpetuating imagery. If your weakness is garbage fast food that's that's what you're going to be tempted to eat all the time you know you're driving by oh look at those golden arches i know i shouldn't but man that would be so good do it you can taste the fries you know then you eat it and you're like i feel like death it's, that's my issue is donuts love them you look at them, and you're like, i got to have that. That is so delicious. And he's saying, just go for it. Then I eat them, and I feel like I swallowed antifreeze. They're just the most toxic, poisonous things in the world. But, man, they're like heaven going down. And some people, there's a serious issue when it comes to food. Food can be an addiction for people. It's their escape. It's their hideaway. It's, it's what they find their, you know, their purpose in and all that. And, and if that's your weakness you know, he's going to hit you with food-related temptations. You're going to be flipping through the channels, and next thing you know, you're watching Triple D. Diners, drive-ins, and dives. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, i gotta ha- I got to have that. And it's just a mountain of slop. But the way Guy Fieri makes it look, he's the devil. If your weakness is, is unfaithfulness in any area, he will tempt you with opportunities to be unfaithful. I just want, what I'm trying to tell you is the devil is no dummy. He's an expert in human nature. And he can watch you and learn. He's not, he doesn't know all things like God, but he can watch you and he can learn your patterns. And he does this. He might have his demons doing that. They're studying you. Okay, that's a tendency of Phil's. Hit him with more of that. Slam him with This. Put this in front of him. And I'm like, oh, just following these minions around like a pinball. He's an expert. This is how he rolls. He came to Jesus. Jesus is hungry. Let's take care of that hunger, man. Just do what I tell you. Take those stones and turn them into bread. Could Jesus have done that? Are you kidding me? He could have turned those into an amazing buffet. I don't think there is such thing as an amazing buffet. The food's been sitting there under a lamp. He could have turned it into something far greater than that. He'll get specific, so you need to be ready for him. Now, how did Christ repudiate him here? Look at verse 4. But he, that's Jesus, that's Christ, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes, I like that word, proceedeth from the mouth of God. That's how he combats that temptation. Christ struck back, what did he do? He struck back at the devil with Scripture. Deuteronomy 8, three, to be precise. And what he didn't do here is he didn't defend his identity as the Son of God. That's really what the devil was questioning, but Christ knew who he was. He didn't defend that. He simply cited the Word of God here in response to this food-related temptation. I would say this, obedience to the will of the Father expressed in the Word of God was far more important to him than satisfying his hunger. That is evidence of that in the scripture here. He doesn't say, okay, I'll turn those into that. I'll follow your advice. He does the opposite. He tells man, man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Sproul wrote, I firmly believe he was willing to starve to death rather than deny the truthfulness of his father's word. I totally concur. What must we do when the devil's minions come to tempt us? I mean... Let's notice the blueprint here for us. We'll continue to see this. When he comes, when the minions come and they tempt, whether it be food-related or spending-related or whatever it is, some kind of unfaithfulness or area or whatever, some kind of other sin, lust, or any of that, what must we do? We must follow Christ's example and do as he did, strike back with Scripture. This is why it is imperative for us to read and memorize certain verses. Yeah, the whole Bible, certainly, but that's a task. But we should get specific, we should study specific scriptures and memorize certain scriptures to load our gun belt and to be ready to use these things when the tempter comes. Deuteronomy 8.3 is a good place to start, right? Now look at verses 5 through 6, these things will move a little quicker. Okay, so shut him down on that one. Then the devil took him to the holy city, it's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, questioning his identity here, what God declared, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the second temptation. The devil somehow whisked Christ away to the highest point of the temple. This section of the temple faced the Kidron Valley, The pinnacle, this particular side, was about 450 feet above the valley floor. This was probably the highest point in Jerusalem, I'm sure of it. For perspective, between 1898 and 1923, San Francisco's tallest building was 315 feet tall. The Call Building is what it was called. That was the tallest building for 25 years in the city of San Francisco. If you've ever been there, they've got a lot of skyscrapers. 55% of the buildings there are over 400 feet tall. Buildings are big in that city. In fact, it's got some of the largest buildings and tallest buildings in the entire country. It ranks up there with New York and these other places. So this, this pinnacle was a very, very high point, way up there, so much so that you could see the whole Kidron Valley, and probably, if you turned around, you could see all of Jerusalem. Very, very tall place, While looking down at the valley floor and looking out across the valley, the Kidron Valley, the devil began to tempt him again. It was as if the devil was saying, if you are going to quote scripture at me, Jesus, let's test it. You think that the scriptures cannot be broken. You think that your father's word is true. Well, we can prove it. All you have to do is jump from the pinnacle of the temple. And if the word of God is true, the angels will catch you. If you really believe that the word of God is true, you have nothing to worry about. You can sling yourself and that scripture will come to life and you'll be fine. And what the devil actually did was he twisted, and what the devil quoted was Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12, and he totally twisted it to fit his narrative. It is not a prophecy pertaining to Messiah. It's not, a prophet, it's not a prophetic scripture that has to do with Messiah. That is, if Messiah were to do this, that prophecy would come true. That's not at all what it is. It is a statement of fact about how God, the God of angel armies, whom we sung about earlier, protects his people. Those who have made him their, what it says in those psalms, their dwelling place. They have made God their dwelling place and their refuge the Geneva Bible, study Bible says this, it says, God has not appointed one angel to every man, but many to be ministers of his providence to keep and defend them in their calling. Psalm 91 has to do with God's surrounding and protecting us with his angels. It does not have to do with rescuing Christ from falling from the pinnacle of the temple. But that's what the devil was trying to make it about. What do verses 5 and 6 tell us about the devil's schemes? They tell us that he is clever enough, that he is smart enough to try to use Scripture against us. Not just our weaknesses and our needs, need and weakness based temptations. He's clever enough to try to use Scripture to mess us up. He takes it and he twists it. Now, I say he's been doing this from the very beginning. In the first century, I'd say the first, second, and third centuries, he twisted scripture and attacked the deity of Christ. He unleashed docetism, Gnosticism, Arianism against the church. These are all heresies that undermine and attack the deity of Christ. In the 4th and 5th centuries, he twisted Scripture and attacked human depravity and the sovereignty of God and salvation. He unleashed Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism against the church. In the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, he twisted Scripture again and went all out, attacking the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of grace, the sufficiency of faith, the sufficiency of Scripture, and ultimately the glory of God. This is why the five solas came out of that. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. Scripture alone, God's glory alone, that was the, the true churches and the Holy Spirit's response to these errors that were coming through the Catholic church. Which was the devil's work. He's been at this from the beginning. Not only has he been undermining scripture and questioning it and causing others to do that. He has been taking scripture and twisting it and causing people who call themselves Christians to come up with some of the most outlandish, crazy things in the world. Christ isn't God. Man's totally autonomous and free; can do whatever the heck he wants. God's not sovereign; man is. He's been coming up with these errors and these heresies, apostasies since the beginning. It's what he does. He's doing it here too. Man, if you really believe that the scripture cannot be broken, Christ, let's prove that it cannot be. Do what I tell you to do. Jump. And, and Psalm 91 says the angels will come in and rescue you. He's twisting scripture, he reinterprets it, and he gets us to believe his lies. Now, how did Christ repudiate the devil here? Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, devil, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is how he responds. Christ struck back at the devil with what? Scripture again. If you're not using scripture to battle temptation, no wonder you're giving into to it. It's the only thing that works because it's the only thing that has power. It's the only thing that has authority. It's the only thing that the devil and the demons will yield to at times. And this time, Jesus went to Deuteronomy 6.16. I'll tell you what, he highlighted the, the cardinal rule of biblical interpretation, which is that one portion of Scripture is not to be set against another portion. In other words, we are not to take a verse and use it against another verse. And that's exactly what the devil's trying to do here. He takes Scripture and he pits it against Scripture. Scripture, you must understand, is always self-affirming. It is never contradictory. If we have difficulty with certain verses, it is not Scripture's fault, but our own lack of comprehension. Maybe our own set of biases that keep us from understanding and accepting the truth. It's not the Scripture's fault. Someone once said this, and I love this. I love this. Someone once said, I couldn't find out who, who did it. And I don't know if I'm quoting it line by line perfectly, but it, it was something like this. If the scriptures have multiple meanings, they have no meaning at all. None. We need to stop looking at a verse and say, well, it can mean this, it can mean that, it can mean these two things. It says something here, but that seems to be in, 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 in opposition to over here. Somehow this has to exist, and this has to exist, and people are always saying these things. And then somehow God's got it all worked out in his mind. Scripture always has one meaning. God's meaning. God's meaning. Now, it's difficult for us to to uncover what that is at times. Sometimes things aren't so clear. But that's human difficulty and challenges. It's not the Scripture. The Scripture is clear. God has declared what he's declared. Truth is truth is truth is truth. And if we go around telling people, well, it can mean this, it can mean that, guess what? At the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. And this is what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to pit Scripture against Scripture. He's trying to pit the Lord of Scripture against Scripture amazing totally agree with that statement if the scriptures have multiple meanings they have no meaning at all they don't mean anything it's not clear and are we really going to be that bold to say that God is not clear that God didn't know what he was doing that's reckless if Christ had agreed to the devil's suggestion that he jump off the temple he would be what putting the father to the test The devil said, let's test the scripture. You believe they're unbroken. Let's test them. Do what I tell you to do. Christ, in his mind, said, if I do that, I'd be putting the Father to the test. And I'm not to do that. We should never put God to the test. This is why he refused to do it. And he knew that Psalm 91 is absolutely true. Christ wasn't refuting that here one iota. The angels do have charge over him. They do have charge over God's people. But Jesus did not need to see physical proof to believe the Word of God. And that's a huge point. Later on in his ministry, he condemned those who are always looking for a sign to accompany God's Word. Matthew 12, 39. This is a pandemic in the church today. The scripture's not enough. I have to have a sign, I have to have a wonder to accompany it. And Jesus said, Those who do that, they're condemned. The scripture is it. It's sufficient. It's what we need. It's all we need. We shouldn't be looking for something in addition to it, whether it be a sign or a wonder or any other type of affirmation. That's the example that Christ gives us here. I'll tell you, this problem plagues the church today, man, big time. The plain scriptures themselves and the plain preaching of scripture is not enough for this consumeristic culture. It's not enough. People are always on the lookout for a sign. They're always on the lookout for a tongue. They're always on the lookout for a wonder. And it's shameless. The scripture is enough. If you get anything from this sermon, know this. The scripture is enough. You don't need anything to accompany it. The only thing that you need to accompany the scripture is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because he takes the word and applies it. You don't need all this other stuff to go along with it. This is one of the great travesties in the church today that it's not enough. I need a video. I can't. Handle, I, just, I need an illustration. I need, I need some kind of a sign. I, I need an emotional you know, kickstart. I need my adrenaline worked up. The scripture's enough. And Christ literally, there were people around him all the time. Well, you're saying this and you're preaching the word and all that. Well, why don't you show us something to go along with it? That would be so helpful. And he says, no, the scripture's enough. Jesus didn't need to prove it to himself here by jumping off and having angels rescue him. He believed the scripture. We are commanded to do the same thing. I'm sorry, I get a little passionate about this because I think the church, in many sections of the church are running wild with these things. And it's like, man, we've got to get back to the word of God. We've got to get back to the word of God. We need to stay with the word of God. What must we do when the devil's minions come to tempt us? Follow Christ's example and strike back with Scripture. This is what he did. Look at verses 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the third temptation. Finally, The devil took Christ up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He offered Christ all the authority and glory the world has to give. That's what he did. And he also portrayed the price for all this glory as being very, very small. He said, in effect, all you have to do is bow to me one little time. Nobody will see it. Nobody's watching. That's the idea that we get from the Greek here. Just just, just just, do it real quick. Just bow down to me right here. Just worship me real quick, and it's all yours. Nobody's watching. How many times has he come and tempted us in that way? Nobody's watching what you're doing right now. Nobody's in the room with you. Go to that website. Just bow to me just quickly. Just bow to me. It's okay. Just bow to me. You'll be all right. No one will see it what was he telling Jesus all you have to do is bow to me one little time no one will see it and what and you will inherit the world and all of its luxuries and glory without any suffering without any humiliation without any pain without most importantly without crucifixion you can have it all just just do it real quick it'll take two seconds what do verses eight and nine tell us about the devil's schemes They tell us that the devil will often tempt us to take an easier route around or through difficult situations or to cheat or to cut corners. He was offering to put Jesus on the fast track to glory, wasn't he? Where you can just skip all that tough stuff and just go right to it. The truth is, if Jesus had took the devil's advice, glory would not have been his prize. Instead, he would have been disqualified, and we would be without a Savior, and we would be without hope. Just skip all that difficulty. It's super important that we understand how necessary it is for us to go through difficult seasons and trials. It's very important that as a believer, you understand how necessary it is for you to go through these things and to not try to escape or to avoid them. It's completely necessary for you to do this. It's part of the deal. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, test our faith and the testing of our faith produces steadfastness that's patient endurance and steadfastness produces sanctification being made like Jesus I am convinced that next to the word of God and 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 next to prayer there is nothing else out there that shapes us and makes us more like Christ than trials I'm convinced of it Trials and difficult seasons are one of the primary tools that God uses to shape and chip away the rough edges, to form us, to humble us, even to break some of these terrible things that we engage in, to shape and to form and to chip away and to make us like Christ. If he were to remove those things, it would be so detrimental to your sanctification. It would be. And what is the devil always trying to do? He is always trying to lead us away from these things. Always. Is he not? He says, just bow to me real quick, and you can avoid this. You can go around it. You don't have to go through this. Gosh, if God loves you, he certainly wouldn't put you through it. No, 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 devil. It's because God loves me. He's putting me through it. He is always tempting us to take the path of least resistance. Why? Because the last thing that he wants is for us to be made more and more like Christ. He hates Christ. The devil will do anything to get us to avoid the trouble and the trials and the difficult seasons. He comes and he tempts, just bow, just just do this. Just manipulate this. Just do that. He didn't want us to become like Christ. He hates Christ with a passion. He wants us to take the broad road, which is the road of ease. It's the road that everyone seeks and pursues. It's just easier, seemingly, but it leads to destruction. It's the narrow path you must enter through the narrow gate. I was thinking about some of the narrow paths that I've walked on when hiking and stuff. One wrong move. See ya. Cameron would know about this. The guy climbs Half Dome every other week. One wrong move. Lily gets insurance money. Just make sure you're not with him and you accidentally get yeah, the... Yeah. Ah, 400 grand, I love you. She would never do that, but I would. He's wanted to throw me off a few times. It's a narrow path. And it, it's, it's marked with bearing crosses and suffering and trial and disease and cancer and pain and loss. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet... God wastes none of it. It's all meant to shape. It's all meant for our good. Do we believe the scripture that says that that for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, that He works all things, all things for their good? Do we believe that? Then why would we listen to this little tempter who comes and says, Avoid. No, He meant this for my good. I can't see that right now, devil, but I know that's what it's about. How did Christ repudiate the devil here? Did he take the easy path to glory? Disneyland, fast track, go right around those crowds. Is that what he did? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, exclamation point. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only, only shall you serve. Christ struck back at the devil with scripture once more, didn't he? This time he went to Deuteronomy 6.13, which has to do with soli deo gloria, the uh, the glory of God alone. Adam bowed down to the serpent in the garden, but Christ refused to bow to him in the wilderness. He refused to take the easier route, the fast track to glory. Christ said in effect, no way devil, I will worship and serve my God alone. In doing so, something so critical and something so profound and important for us took place here when he repudiated him this third time. In repudiating him here and saying, man, I, I, God has my heart and God alone has my heart. I will bow and worship and serve him alone. In doing so, Christ did what? He maintained his righteousness, which is what? Our righteousness. Aren't you thankful for that? You do realize if he would have given in the temptation, his righteousness is gone, which means our righteousness is gone, which means we don't know God. We wouldn't have a leg to stand on. All God would do is look upon me and see all my filth, my filthy rags, and my unrighteousness. He would not see the imputed, the given, the transferred righteousness of Christ. If Christ had failed here, it's over. No righteousness, which means you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm so thankful. Now look at the final outcome in verse 11. We're almost done. I love this. It says, then the devil left him and behold. See, this is where my translation is stronger than yours. Yours doesn't say and behold. Right? I love you. I always get my little digs in. Then the devil left him and behold. Angels came and we ministering to him. I love that. Christ used scripture three times to repudiate the devil. And what did that cause? It caused the devil to flee. To leave him. What must we do when the devil's minions come to tempt us? We must follow Christ's example and strike back with scripture until they leave. And that's the, that's the huge point here. How do you know... When the demons have left, how do you know that they've left your presence? How do you know they're gone after you've repudiated them? You know how you know? The temptation goes away. That's how you know. Okay, I'm not tempted anymore. The temptation will cease. Notice the second half of verse 11. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What does this tell us? It tells us that Christ was not completely or totally or absolutely alone in the wilderness. The Father had placed angels nearby to minister to Christ when his temptation was complete. They were there to what? Keep watch over him. Luke chapter 4, verse 10. And this brings us back, it rewinds us back to verse 11. The presence of angels may have been what led the devil to quote Psalm 91 in the first place. Jesus jumped from the pinnacle of the temple and, 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 it's, and God will instruct these angels right here that we can see these angels to do what? To bear you up. You see, these heavenly hosts were there. They were present. They were close by. They were nearby. Oh, well, then that's not cool because Jesus had an advantage Oh, really? Did you read about them interfering or doing anything in the text? No, all you see is them come and minister to him when the temptation is over. Jesus didn't have any advantage by having angels there. And how did the angels minister to Christ? Well, it doesn't say, but it's pretty logical. They helped him with his hunger. They helped him with his loneliness. They helped him in his pain. Because I guarantee you being in that hot desert for that long and without food and with those wild beasts or whatever, those dangerous animals there, I, I just guarantee you he was in pain. That he suffered during this time. He suffered here. This, this suffering in the desert was a precursor to his ultimate suffering at Calvary. He suffered. And the angels came and tended to him. What might we take away from this uh, just astounding, incredible text, I just have three simple things for you. First, I'd say adopt Christ's model for how to deal with temptation. It's pretty clear. Use the scriptures, but not random scriptures. Use specific scriptures to deal with specific temptations. Isn't that what Christ did when he was tempted about food? He used a food verse. He used Targeted specific scripture to strike back at targeted specific temptations. He used passages from Deuteronomy, and they were effective, were they not? Because the word of God is enough. Because the word of God has power. Because the word of God has authority. Why? Because it's God's word and God has all of that. That's the first thing, adopt his model. Secondly, I would say rejoice in knowing that Christ is The second Adam stood his ground in the wilderness, overcame temptation, and maintained his righteousness, which is our righteousness. We just need to stop and just worship and rejoice in that reality right there. This is Christ securing for us our righteousness. One more example of how he did that during his life and his ministry. He did that here for me. So that I could enter the kingdom of heaven and know God. He did that for you so that you could do the same. If you failed here, it's over. There's no righteousness. So rejoice in knowing that Christ the second Adam stood his ground and overcame temptation. Maintained his righteousness which is our righteousness. That's huge. Number three. The God of angel armies has put his angels around us to protect us and to minister to us. Psalm 91 is about us. It's about us. At God's command, the angels will what? Bear us up. He's assigned angels to us. But let's not forget. It's about Christ. Christ has become our great high priest, and he watches over us personally. It's not just that we have angels that... That, that have our detail and protect us and, and bear us up and, and, and follow us and, and and around us and protect us I believe there's angels around this church. That's wonderful. But more significantly, we have a great high priest. We, we have a, a, a good shepherd. He watches over us personally.